Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of X's and Opinions. I'm your host, Haley Zemek, and today I'm joined by my panel of analysts, Joelle Moran and Michael Daly. Guys, how are you doing today? How's your summer going? Haven't gotten to talk to you guys in a while. I'm doing great right now. Uh, summer is about to end. I'm sad about that, but I'm happy to finally go to school and be in person this time because last semester everything was remote. Didn't really like that, but I'm looking forward to going back to school in person again. Same as Joel. I'm looking forward to meeting people I have or seeing people again that I haven't seen in so long. So it's good. I mean, the summer has been great so far, but just trying to enjoy the last month or so. And it's great to be on with you two. Joel, I remember the last time we were on, that was a great one. So hopefully this one lives up to that. Yeah, absolutely. I hear you guys. I feel the same way. I just want to be in person. I want to see, you know, the whole sports staff for WSOU and just really want to be in person again with doing all this coverage. I know podcasts are, you know, easy to do, whether it's here on Zoom or in person, but, you know, it's always good to get together and talk sports. So, uh, to start off, the first thing we're going to talk about is obviously the NBA finals happened this week, which was pretty exciting. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and he's the league's reigning MVP, and the Milwaukee Bucks, one of the best regular season teams, they failed to reach the NBA finals these past two years. But after a thrilling six-game NBA finals this season, the Milwaukee Bucks have won their first title in 50 years, which is crazy was this at all what you guys were expecting from this team I wasn't expecting it because it should have never happened the reason why it should have never happened is because the team they were supposed to lose to the Brooklyn Nets were hurt they didn't have Kyrie Irving they didn't have James Harden James Harden had a grade two hamstring he wasn't even supposed to come back within four weeks he came back within a week that's how much of a warrior he is and the fact that Giannis was gloating after the win about super teams makes me sick to my stomach. I know we'll get into that, but this should have never happened. And quite honestly, I'm, I'm pretty upset that it did. I knew Joel was going there. Joel is a professional needle pusher and a prodder. Joel, why can't you be happy for the Milwaukee Bucks? Finally, it's a team that built their success from the ground up. That's how it should be in any sport, and that's what happened. Look, I'll be honest here. The Brooklyn Nets should have won the NBA Finals, but injuries happen. I don't think that's the Bucks' fault. That's the card that they were dealt, and they got the better end of the stick. So it's no knock on Giannis. You cannot fault the Milwaukee Bucks. It's just the circumstances. Because at the end of the day, the Brooklyn Nets should not be blaming the Milwaukee Bucks. They should be blaming themselves because they should have never been the two seed in the East. They should have fought for the one seed, but they let the Sixers get it. So it's not the Bucks' fault. If anything, it's Steve Nash's fault. Well, they, they did fight for the one seed. They got it with James Harden. Then he went down with the hamstring injury, and they lost it. James Harden did his part. He was in the MVP race. And I can blame the Bucks because if it wasn't for Giannis landing on Kyrie's ankle, Kyrie doesn't get hurt. And the Nets were up. 2-0. At the time, they were about to be up 3-0, but the Bucks, you know, I'll, I'll give them that game three victory. It's fine, but that Kyrie Irving injury was a dirty play on Giannis's part, and when I was watching the championship celebration, P.J. Tucker, who's one of my favorite players in the NBA, mentioned something very important. 
He said this team always had the dogs. They just didn't know how to unleash it. You want to know why? Because the Milwaukee Bucks roster before P.J. Tucker got there, they were a bunch of pups. P.J. Tucker was a difference in the Bucks championship run. And next year when he goes to Brooklyn, he'll be the difference there. He's going to be a two-time champion when he goes. The reason why the Bucks should have never won is because one of the, the Nets injuries. Two is that they faced the Hawks, who should have never even been in the ECF. Philly just flat out choked. That would have been a good matchup. This entire playoffs, Giannis did not face one defense that could successfully build a wall on him. Monty Williams left a 22-year-old 22, 22 DeAndre Ayton go one-on-one -on -one with Giannis. I'm really hoping that didn't shatter DeAndre Ayton's confidence because that's something that could really do it to you. Monty Williams' game plan was horrible, and for a guy who people were talking about being coach of the year, he, he really didn't make a, a lot of adjustments in the finals and it really made me sick to my stomach that I had to watch the Bucks hold, that, hold up that trophy. I'm happy for you as a fan. But for the, for the team, look, this road was easy. Let's just be honest. The road was easy. It was easy. Yes. Easy. Going, going seven games against the Brooklyn Nets is easy. That's, that's easy? The, that's the only hard part. That they oh, had only hard part. Okay. The only one. So beating the Miami Heat four straight games, that's easy? After they defeated them the year before, that's easy? Come they on. Good now years. you're just sounding like a hater. You're not even sounding like an informed NBA analyst like you are, which you are. But now you're just sounding like a hater. And the Milwaukee Pups, that's what you said? No. No. Because honestly, if you, if you don't think they are dogs, then how do you feel that your team, James Harden, who's had this ongoing beef with Giannis since 2014, how do you feel those guys lost to the Pups? Well, Harden was hurt. I mean, he couldn't oh, even... Okay. And Giannis was hurt. Giannis was hurt heading into the finals, and they still won. That sounds like a lot of excuses. Harden was a dog who got hit by a car. He couldn't walk straight. And we all knew that he still was a warrior out there and gave it his all. I'm going to jump in on this yep. debate now just because I'm, I'm hearing both sides. I'm quite entertained hearing this, this uh, debate. My, my first thing is, I'm a Knicks fan and I just wanted that Cinderella story from the beginning. And I know anyone who's a Knicks fan wanted that. And, you know, the Hawks were great. They took us in the playoffs. It is what it is. But then watching all of these different games happening, I thought the Sixers had a great chance. I thought the Clippers had a great chance. And then when it came down to being the Bucks and the Suns, to me, it was like a no brainer thinking the Suns would win but then watching these games and seeing how Giannis and the Bucks like Michael said kind of built up this team to make it this far I it's it's crazy to me that they did win but I think they're very deserving so I I'm agreeing with both of you on different sides I guess I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a lot to think about because, you know, there were so many talented teams this year. And obviously, like you guys said, injuries, they are prominent on all teams. They happen to any player at any time. So you never know what's really going to happen. Also, I didn't mention, I thought the Nets were going to get really far too. And it's just, it was the Bucks and the Suns. And, you know, it's seven games. You see what happens. I do want to jump now to obviously, the Bucks won. 
And when your team wins, a finals MVP is chosen. And this year it was Giannis Antetokounmpo. How do you guys feel about Antetokounmpo being named the finals MVP? Well, first off, that was lovely by you. And I'm glad that you are soothing Michael's emotions. It shows how much of a good friend that you are. I'm calm. That you were trying to convince him that the championship was somehow deserving because Daly needs that convincing. I know he's on the fence about it, of whether they really are. But, you know, it's been 50 years, so we'll let it slide. Uh, look, Giannis deserved Finals MVP. Nobody could guard him in that series. Chris Middleton, they tried to push him for Finals MVP. I thought it was ridiculous, quite frankly. Giannis did what he had to do. He, he scored 35 points per game. He had about 13 rebounds. It was obvious that defensively and offensively, he was the best player on the court, help defender-wise on defense, because on ball, it was Drew Holiday, and he really saved the honest a lot of times. But I'll just say this. You know, he's very deserving of it, but we have to hold our horses when talking about where we rank Giannis. Because as soon as this championship was done, people want to put him over Dirk Nowitzki when this run wasn't better than his 2011 run. And he actually beat a super team healthy, unlike Giannis in the Bucks. So we have to hold our horses in terms of the rankings, but Giannis is on his way and he has a fantastic resume for a 26 year old. Giannis was very deserving of the NBA Finals MVP. I think that goes without question. A lot of people were saying that Chris Middleton should have won the MVP. I, I don't think that was the case. Although I think Chris Middleton is a very complimentary 1B or a 2, I think Giannis, the fact that he overcame an injury, dealt with that coming out of the Atlanta series, many people didn't even think he was going to be fully healthy to start the series, which he wasn't. Started game one, people questioned it, but he looked like the same Giannis for six games, which was impressive and deserving of a finals MVP. Now, Joel, I do agree with you. I think people, it's part of recency bias. I think people just want to tab somebody as the next best thing. I think if we're going to talk about Giannis in any ranking, I think we need to talk about him now in current day NBA. And that is, he's the best damn basketball player in the world. It's not LeBron James anymore. I'm sorry, it's not Kevin Durant. It's Giannis Antetokounmpo. The reason why. The guy can take over a game. He's arguably the best defensive player in the league. Oh, and by the way, damn near averages a double-double a game. That's how good he is. Can take over a game better than everyone else, better than LeBron James and Kevin Durant. So because Giannis won the finals, he's the best player in the world. When you watch the Nets versus the Bucks series, you saw that series all seven games. Mm -hmm. You thought Giannis was better than Kevin Durant in that series. Yeah, you did. I did. You I did. Here's lying. why. Here's why. Here's why. How did Kevin Durant make his team better? He took all the shots at the end. Well, that's that's false. He took all. The, well, he took all the shots because he had to. Nobody else was stepping up. James Harden couldn't shoot. He was two for eleven from three, I believe. And when we talk about the Nets, we have to talk about the lack of help that Kevin Durant had in that series. He averaged thirty five points per game he had close to two 50 point performances he averaged a double double just like Giannis he actually had a and if we're talking about points assists blocks steals Kevin Durant was better than Giannis in that series the only thing Giannis had was rebounds and that was by a little bit 
Kevin Durant beat him in every single statistical category. And what I mentioned earlier, the lack of help, Joe Harris could not hit a shot. Kevin Durant's best help was Jeff Green, who was playing on an injury, and he had a one breakout game. Blake Griffin was fairly consistent, but Blake Griffin's consistency persists of 14 points per game. It is an all-star level help. Giannis had Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton. You're talking about taking over games. Giannis is not even the closer for his team. That's not true. That's not true. What happened in game six? What happened in game six of the NBA finals? You want to go back to the conference finals. What happened in game six of the NBA finals? Who closed out that game? Well, Giannis had some good buckets down the stretch, but the final bucket, the final say was Chris Middleton. What about the free throws? Look, he he made his free throws. Am I supposed That's to closer? Am I supposed to congratulate him for making free shots? It's called a free throw for a reason. Kevin Durant Shaq couldn't hit them. the same the same exact thing. Shaq couldn't hit them. You're right, but I think Giannis has better touch than Shaq. Shaq was a true center. Giannis is kind of like a hybrid forward wing and center. So look, like I said. Giannis, he can take over games, but he is not the closer of a team. He is not the guy that you pass the ball to in the fourth quarter. Chris Middleton was that for Milwaukee, and that's why they won a championship. These past years, you know it and I know it, the Bucks' playoff failures have been because of Chris Middleton because he couldn't be that number two. He, was, he stunk it up in the playoffs. I never thought Giannis performed bad in the playoffs, and the stats show that he doesn't perform bad. It was Chris Middleton who never stepped up. And then Bledsoe alongside, alongside with him, never stepped up. And that's why Giannis needed a second option. There's no shame in that. But Kevin Durant, at 23 years old, I saw him lead an OKC team to the finals in the West. Did he win? He didn't no. win, but he led them. No, he didn't. He what happened them. in 2011 when he lost to the Dallas Mavericks? What happened in 2010 when he lost to the LA Lakers? What happened in 2013? Oh, he lost to the Memphis Grizzlies. That's right. What about all the other years? What about when he was on OKC in 2016, up 3-1, lost, and then joined the team that beat him? That's a closer? And what about uh, game seven of this year, the semifinals? If he was so much of a closer, how come he didn't have his foot away from the line? Had it on the line and then made an excuse. Not a closer. Sorry. Not a closer. Top three player, but three. It's Giannis, LeBron, KD. You're talking about 2010. He was 21, 22 years old. You brought it up. You brought it up. You said 2012. That's totally fine. That's totally fine. All right, guys, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to jump in. Please, please. please. There's one thing that each of you have said that I I do agree with. Joel, you said at the the very, very beginning of uh, you uh, said that Ante Tacumpo is starting to be ranked as one of the best players above Durant, above LeBron James, above Michael Jordan, above all these people. I was reading these articles the other day that were saying that, and I, I don't agree that he's that high up on the list. I do think he's a great player. And obviously this playoff run that they had and obviously winning, it shows that he can get there someday. Again, he's only 26, but having that reputation that he has now with, you know, being an MVP and winning this for his team. Obviously he has, you know, some work to do where he could get as good as Durant and as LeBron James and Michael Jordan and all these other players. But right now I don't see him 
I don't think he should be held at such a high stature as everyone else. Now, the thing that I do agree with that Michael said is I saw him as a closer in these games. I really did. I, I know, Joelle, you hate to hear that, but just watching these games, he's that player that they needed. Like, obviously, when you say, oh, Ante Tacumpo's like the Bucks leader, that's that's different than being a closer. But watching these games, I could see with my own eyes that he was doing that for the team. He was bringing them to the end and he was closing it out and taking these wins. So we will leave it at that. These heated debates are great, guys. Uh, so next, we're still going to stick with uh, the NBA. But after winning uh, the final, Giannis took a swipe at not specifically the Nets, but he was taking a swipe at super teams. But you, people were taking it as he was talking about the Nets. And the thing that he did within the finals is he had to win the hard way. He does not have a super team. What are your thoughts on both the Bucks and the Suns making it to the finals and neither of them being considered super teams? Well... It's pretty ridiculous that he mentioned that. I, I'll say, one, the Suns had a very fortunate run, much like the Bucks. They faced teams that were injured. The Suns next year, I don't view them as legitimate contenders in the West unless teams are injured again. And the Bucks, perennial chokers, three first-round exits in the last seven years, blew a 2-0 lead to the Raptors in the ECF and got embarrassed in a bubble by the Miami Heat. They didn't face any team that had the personnel to really guard Giannis. And... The teams they did face in the Nets were injured, and the Hawks, let's just face it, the Hawks were not an Eastern Conference Finals team. They should have been eliminated in the second round, plus Trey Young was playing with the bone bruise. I think his shot at super teams was unintentional. Well, I'm not saying that. It was uncalled for. The reason for that is because he did not play a super team in these playoffs. The hard way, what hard way did he go through? Like, yes, he had some adversity, but he didn't have a Hakeem in 94 or 95 like run. He didn't have a Dirk in 2011 like run. He didn't even have a Kawhi in 2019 like run where he won on a buzzer beater against a team in Philly who had Jimmy and Bede, Tobias and Ben Simmons. Like, come on, this guy. This guy is talking about this. Look, I love the Greek freak. He has a really cool personality. I love that Chick-fil-A video. But what hard way? He didn't face any team that was considered a super team. I think he just has to enjoy his championship because it's going to be the last one that he sees in a while. What about the first two games against the Brooklyn Nets? Last I checked, that was a super team he faced because they were all healthy. Yeah, he lost those games, but that's fine overcame adversity. Not too many people can come down 2-0 against any Nets team, regardless of injuries. It's not easy. You pick any other team in the East, I'm sorry, they're not getting past the Nets. So let's give Giannis and his teammates some props there. Now, when it comes to the idea of super teams, I feel like fans talk out of both sides of their mouth because they get upset when super teams are started, right? But when an NBA Finals is two teams who most people didn't expect to get there, the ratings are at an all-time low. Wouldn't you think it's the opposite, where you would want to tune in for the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks because it's parody, like the MLB, 
like the NFL as well. Who would have thought the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in our lifetime would be Super Bowl champions again after 2002? No one, but they did. And I think people like that with the NBA, but when it comes to the finals, for whatever reason, LeBron James, when he's in it, when Kevin Durant's in the finals and it's Lakers Nets, those are the highest rated. And I get it. I understand why. But I think fans are part of the reason why someone like Giannis now is talking about super teams because it's all the rage. I think for Giannis, I don't think he needs to focus on super teams because at the end of the day, heading into next year, the Bucs are a part of a two-team race to get back to the finals. It's the Bucs and the Nets. Don't talk to me about the Philadelphia 76ers, the Celtics, the Raptors, anyone else. It doesn't matter. It's the Nets and the Bucs. Right now, being unbiased, the Nets should get to the finals. But knowing them and the lack of chemistry, like we're seeing with Team USA, who knows? So you can't count out the Bucs right now. And to say that Giannis will never sniff another championship again, I don't know if, it, I don't know if that's true. I think what they have going here in Milwaukee is great because Mike Budenholzer, you may not know this, Joel, but the guy was an assistant coach on several championship teams in San Antonio. He knows what it takes to win a title. More than one, by the way. <laughs> okay, I have to ask you one question. You said something that was completely wrong when you first started, which threw me off the entire monologue, even though I tried to listen. The Nets were a super team. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving with no James Harden is a great team. It's not a super team. Would you agree on that fact? Or are we no. calling them? No, it's a, it's a super no, 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 team no, no, without no, no, no. James Harden. Wait, you asked me a question. Can I answer it? Yeah. So let me ask it. Let me ask it better. Okay. Are the Nets a super team with two of their stars healthy and the third one not playing, injured? Are Here's they still why. a super team? Here's why. Because they were a super team without him. And they were bolstered with him in January. The Nets, you're looking at me dumbfounded. The Nets, without James Harden, in the Eastern Conference should have made the NBA Finals. They were projected to be the favorite to get out of the East. Were they not? It was a two-way race between Milwaukee and the Nets. Come on. You really think people thought Milwaukee be taking out everything that happened in the season, right? When, when did the season start? December 22nd, I believe. In November, when everyone was projecting who was going to go far, and James Harden was disgruntled in Houston, and people thought he was going to go other places other than Brooklyn, the Nets were a super team. And then Steve Nash jumped on in September to coach them. They were a super team. Once, once the Bucks got Drew, that changed. And I'll say this. If you want to say they're a super team with Kyrie and KD before James Harden got there, okay. But that's because you're accounting for Karis LeVert, who's a 20-point-per-game scorer. You're, you're accounting for Spencer Dinwiddie, who is supposed to be healthy. You're accounting for Jared Allen, who's a very good defender and rim protector. So without James Harden and not having Levert, not having Allen, not having Dinwiddie, come on, a super team? Let's stop this. No, no, no. Here, here's why, Joel. Team. Joel, here's why. Here's why they are. Because in 2019, when both of those guys signed on to join the Nets, what were they called? And, and what did people say when they're both healthy? What right, because remember, have? KD had to sit out. Everyone was saying they're a super team. What did they have? They had Levert, Dinwiddie, and Allen. They had KD, 
and Kyrie Irving. So That's the Lakers. So you're telling me and the Lakers are a super it team. It doesn't matter. Those so two guys alone make a super team. Lakers are a super team. That's what you're telling me. With LeBron and AD. Yeah. The Clippers are a super team with Kawhi and PG. No, no, not because of Paul George. Paul George is a steep fall off. Here's why. Chemistry is a part of it as well. Paul George isn't a point guard. When you have a point guard with otherworldly talents like Kyrie Irving and you're bringing him in with Kevin Durant in 2019 after Kevin Durant pretty much helped the Warriors get to the finals that year before he was injured, you're telling me those two guys together isn't a super team? It's not. A super team is three superstar caliber no, it's players not. on a team. Yes, it is. It's no, it's not. Not it's when those two guys, when Kevin Durant, someone like Kevin Durant or LeBron are on a team with another star or a superstar, that's a super team. Kyrie, then you build around. Kyrie is not on that level. He's In not 2019, he was. When he was a Boston Celtic and then left, he was on that level. You're quick to forget The that. narrative around him when he left Boston was not that. He was a star. He was an all-star, a perennial all-star. He just, averaging more than 20 a game. He just came off a horrible series against your team, the Bucks. Yes. Yes. But that was a narrative around situation. him. Th- this is my final point. Okay. For one, the Nets are not a super team if they don't have all three of their superstars healthy. Two, then Joel... What were they in 2019 when they signed on? Everybody and their mother was calling they were, them a super team. They were a great team. They're not a no, super they team. were a super team. That's this a other, super this team. is the other thing I have to say. Let's stop acting like Giannis had no help. Middleton is an all-star. Drew Holiday is an all-star. He's one of the he's one of the best defenders in the NBA. Dane Miller thinks he's the best on-ball defender in the NBA. Brooke Lopez is a former all-star. He's the all-time Nets leading scorer. Yeah. This guy, when he gets the opportunity, he can still put up 20 and 8 a game. He, he just can't flourish because there's so many good players around him. P.J. Tucker meant a lot to the Bucks. The addition of Bobby Portis, Bryn Forbes, Pat mm-hmm. Connaughton was really great in DiVincenzo's place. Let's stop acting like the Bucks are this bad team that Giannis had to carry. Middleton averaged 26 points per game in this entire playoffs front. Let's I never stop said acting that. Like, I, never, stop, I never acted like I that. I know, but I'm just saying. This was not a carry job. And even before this series started, the Nets healthy versus the Bucks healthy. Everybody was projecting this series to go to six or seven, even with the Nets having a so-called super team. People even picked the Bucks to win. So when the Nets got injured and still took it to seven and Kevin Durant outplayed Giannis, I don't care what you say. He outplayed Giannis and you can make the argument of, oh, his foot was on the line. All right. But if his shoe size has been one shoe size smaller, he makes the greatest shot in playoff history, at least one of the greatest. And the Nets right now are holding up that championship trophy. So history can change like this. So let's stop acting like luck did not play a big part in this finals run. They won, you know, they won. It, it, you know, it's, it's old news now, but let's, let's stop acting like they were not fortunate. My favorite is just Joel saying, this is my final point. See, I was feeling you wanted to move on to NFL. You, you said NBA. That's old news. Let's move on to the NFL. So what I have for you guys is on Thursday, the NFL sent a memo to each club stating that if a game cannot be rescheduled during the 18-week season due to a COVID-19 outbreak among unvaccinated players, the team with the outbreak will forfeit and be credited with a loss. On top of that, players on both teams will not be paid for the loss contest and the team responsible for the canceled game 
due to the unvaccinated players will cover both financial losses and be subject to potential discipline from the commissioner's office. Do you guys think that the NFL made the right decision by doing this? And if you don't think they made the right decision, what do you think would be like the ideal scenario for this upcoming season? Well, I don't know if it was the right decision or not. Um, I think it kind of strips players of the freedom to make their own choice if they want to get vaccinated or not vaccinated. And I'm a believer of people having a choice to do so or not. But of course, if you're not vaccinated, you have to follow these strict guidelines. And if you do, you know, run into COVID and then spread it, you have to pay the consequences for doing that as well. So I think players that have been outraged about this obviously are in a position where they don't want to take responsibility for their actions if they're unvaccinated. Because if you are unvaccinated and you do get other people sick, you should be held responsible for that. And I think some of these players don't want to take on that responsibility. But in terms of the right or wrong choice, it's, you know, it differs depending on who you ask. I'm a believer in choice. So if they don't want to get vaccinated, it's cool. But you gotta, you, you have to follow these strict guidelines if you don't. If we're looking at everyday life, I would say this is a mistake. But when you throw into the fact that the NFL is a private company and they are a business hoping to make billions of dollars for the upcoming season, they have to protect their entity. And I totally get it because remember what happened last year with the Baltimore Ravens when they had a ton of cases, ended up delaying the Thanksgiving game. They didn't play for another 10 days. It was chaos. It was madness. They had to delay the Pittsburgh-Baltimore game to December 2nd on a Wednesday afternoon. It was wild. You think the NFL wants to do that again? Absolutely not, especially when vaccines are readily available. And I'm talking about this from a business perspective. I'm not talking about everyday life because I agree with you, Joel. I think people should have the choice. Get educated on the vaccine. And if you want to get it, great. If not, then you need to understand the, the risk of either getting it or not getting the vaccine. But when it comes to a private company like the NFL, they are well within their right to force people to get the vaccine. And like coach with the Minnesota Vikings offensive line coach, a Patriots coach as well, for having them get fired, the NFL is not trying to lose money this year. They, they lost a ton of money now they need to start recouping, and this is a part of it. No, absolutely. I, I agree with both of you guys. At, at first, I actually didn't think about it the way that you were saying, Michael. They are a business. They want to make their money. If they have to force their players and their so-called workers to get vaccinated, then that's exactly what they need to do. But I agree with you, Joel, as well, saying that, you know, people should have a choice. In my mind, I think that everyone should get vaccinated, but I can't decide that. If someone can't for medical reasons or religious reasons, then that's their call. So obviously it's all based off of choice. And like you said, there's not really a right or wrong, but I think the the NFL doing this is the right thing in, in my head, just because, you know, it's all about the consequences. Like this is something that's going on in our world and like you said, there's a certain responsibility that people need to have. And if they're not being responsible with their lives and the lives, lives of people around them, obviously there needs to be consequences to that decision that they make. 
So one other thing that I wanted to say is regarding the schedule uh, between last year and this year. Last year, they were able to rework the certain teams' schedules based on the outbreaks on the fly, just as this occurred. There were zero games that were missed, which is crazy to believe. Why don't they just keep the same system instead of trying to change it and make it, you know, all, all the crazier? Uh, I think it's because of two things. I think one is that even though they were making these changes on the fly, we're not really sure how much work went into that. It probably took up these guys entire days trying to make these schedule changes on the fly and making sure everybody's good to go on game day. So it was probably more work than we think it was. And then number two, I think it just sends out a message and it sends out an extra incentive for players to get vaccinated. Like, hey, if you cause your team to have go through COVID protocols, you are going to forfeit this win. So you might as well get vaccinated. And DeAndre Hopkins has come out and said that uh, this isn't freedom and all this stuff. But honestly, it's just an incentive for players to go out and get vaccinated. So if players care about their teams and they care about not forfeiting wins, they probably will go out there and get vaccinated. So I think all in all, I think the NFL is doing this just so all of their employees can be fully vaccinated. And not lose money. That's the thing. It's all about money because I'm not saying the NFL doesn't care about their players. They do. They obviously, they don't want their players getting sick, which hurts their product. But again, it's a business and they can't afford to lose that much money. I think players at this point in time, they have to understand that if you were going to get the vaccine, you probably would have received it by now. Now you're probably not going to get it. And I think that's why the NFL came in with such a heavy handed motion because they need to protect these teams. And I think the reason why they're not rescheduling games like they did last year, and this will actually help out the players. It's weird, but I think it'll help out the players because if a game gets postponed, right. And you have to move it from Sunday to Wednesday. And then that team on, on Wednesday, who now they're, they have to play on Wednesday, then they have to play on either Sunday or their game gets pushed back even further for the next week that they're not even impacted by the team who had COVID. It, it became a mess last year, if you guys remember. This year, they don't want that. They want every game to be played when it should, and they're forcing a lot of the accountability onto the players, and they're forcing everyone to really be team players. I, I hate to sound corny with that, but – you have to look out for other people, not just for yourself. And I think that's what the NFL is trying to say here. I uh, I don't know who specifically it was. I don't remember names or what teams, but I saw somewhere, not players, but coaches. I saw that some assistant coaches are already stepping away from this season because they don't want to get vaccinated. Like, I get it. It's the whole choice thing, but for your team and like, for your job and just for something that you're passionate about, you would think that they would take that like simple step to just, you know, do that and keep their job, keep their livelihood. But I guess to some people, it, they don't really care that much. And one of the things that I also saw was the NFL mentioned that this would be one of the most substantial incentive yet for coaches, players, owners, anyone within the NFL to pressure them to get vaccinated. 
the league so far has only encouraged vaccination. They haven't required it, which I can see where they're coming from. More than half of the league's teams have player vaccination rates above 80%, which is really, really great. Obviously, the NFL wants it to be 100%. So do you believe that the NFL should be putting this much pressure on their players to get vaccinated? I think they should because look, look who coaches the players. A lot of it, a lot of the coaches are older gentlemen. Every year, taking aside COVID, Bruce Arians usually has one or two hospital trips. That's just the amount of pressure he puts on himself and his own health condition. So add on COVID and not just Bruce Arians, pretty much every assistant coach in the NFL. That's where things start to get dicey and you don't want to put your coaches in jeopardy, but also for, I think the NFL wants their coaches to get vaccinated too. So that the players aren't in jeopardy because how many athletes, I remember Eduardo Rodriguez on the Red Sox. I believe it was, I, I may have uh, mistaken the player, but it was someone on the Red Sox. Now they have a heart condition after testing positive for COVID. That is scary stuff. Add on the fact that it's a 60 plus year old coach who may not be in the greatest shape, may not have the greatest health and they get COVID. That's where the morbidity starts to get scary, Joel. And that's something that I didn't think of. And you made an excellent point explaining that and how that's the responsibility that, you know, these players take that they have to protect other people. It's not just about yourself. This conversation is so tough to have because when we talk about vaccinations, it does have a lot of emotional ties into it. I mean, conspiracy theorists are flowing within this stuff. Uh, a lot of people don't want to get vaccinated either for religious purposes or moral purposes. And in their mind, it's fall for something or die for anything. So that's kind of the mindset that they, they adopt. I personally know somebody who has lost their job because their job wanted them to get vaccinated and they chose not to. So I personally know somebody like that. In my mind, I think it's crazy, but in other people's minds, they think that they are doing something right and standing on, sta standing on their moral high ground. But at the same time, you have to look out for other people's well-being. In the NFL, a lot of these coaches are older people. You know, that's just, the, that's just a fact. They are older people. And even if you're vaccinated, you're not fully protected from this virus. And this is something that shut down the world for about a year. So it is something serious. And we're still not sure about the long-term effects of COVID. So getting it can not only affect you within the two-week span that you go through these systems or even fatally, but it can affect you long-term and many years to come, it can affect you. The one thing that I was actually going to say is something that you brought up, Michael, is uh, players, if they contract this and they have it and then, okay, they're okay for a few months, but long-term, they can have heart conditions. They can have lung damage. It's not something that's just like the common cold and you're good within a week. It's something that for the rest of your life, you could be sick with or like get something else from having COVID. I know plenty of people, friends, family that had COVID this past year. And even now they're still not a hundred percent. It's because that's what this virus does to you. So if these players Obviously, if they're vaccinated, they can still spread it, but they're not the ones that are going to like get it. Uh, but if they're unvaccinated, there's this chance that they just 
they won't be okay. And obviously if you're a coach, they're older, that's a little scary, but a player, if they're younger and they want to be healthy and stay within this league for however long they can, there might be a chance that they can't even do that. They might only have a few years and then they, they're, they've hit the point where they feel like they need to retire because they're not as healthy as they once were. So we're going to jump from the NFL now to the Olympics, which I am super duper excited to talk about. Now, after a year of delays due to the coronavirus pandemic, the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games finally got underway with the opening ceremony occurring this past Friday. So the first topic that I wanna mention is Japan's Naomi Osaka, a wonderful tennis player. She was chosen as the final torchbearer. And one of the executive producers for the Olympics mentioned that she was the best person to be chosen to light the Olympic cauldron because it delivered a message of both diversity and inclusion. What is your guys' thoughts on that? Well, I think it's great. I think it's great for her that she was able to do that. And I just watched an episode of her documentary on Netflix. I thought, you know, it was amazing. She talked about how, you know, when I was watching her documentary, it seems like she's a very humble and reserved person. And it, it really does show that it's hard to handle the attention that the media throws at you. And for somebody that has a type of personality, it's very tough. So I think just her fame, her status, the fact that she is a Japanese and black woman, it goes along with that inclusion part. So I think it does signal to the world that, you know, even if not only just for the race stuff, but even if you're going through this, these mental health stuff that she has been very vocal about, you can still be included in these things. And like you mentioned, she's a wonderful tennis player. She's one of the best in the world at what she does. So I think this is great. Part of it, I would say, which made it the right choice for her to be the, the cauldron lighter or the final torchbearer. Not only is it because of diversity and inclusion, which I think ha has a large part to do with it, but I think it's also... You need someone to be the torchbearer who's from Japan or has ties to the country, and she's representing Japan. So I think not only was she the perfect choice because she's so relatable, because she is Black and Japanese, and I'm sure there are thousands, if not millions of people around the world who are just like her and can relate, but she's the biggest star that Japan has to offer in these Olympics. And I think what also helps, too, is because of her ties to America. Because a lot of people may not have known that she was even born in Japan because of the star that she is here. And she, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think she grew up here but was born there. So I, she, she does have relations and ties to both. And I think it was important to have her be the final torchbearer. Because if you look at 1996, when the Olympics were in Atlanta, Muhammad Ali lit the torch. And then even 2010, when it was in Vancouver, Wayne Gretzky, Steve Nash, they were the final torchbearers. David Beckham in London, he was the final torchbearer. So it's all about picking someone who the home country, in this case, Japan, can connect with, and it just sends shockwaves of pride down their spine. That's what the goal is when choosing the final torchbearer. And Naomi Osaka was the perfect choice. You know, Naomi Osaka is such a big star that 
I thought that most of her fame was here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Until I watched her documentary, I'm like, wow, in Japan, her fan base is immense and it is very passionate. I never knew how they felt about her because honestly, just me being narrow minded, I didn't think tennis was that big of a sport, you know, quite honestly. But it shocked me that tennis is that big of a sport and these people are really big celebrities. And then looking at her Instagram following, she has millions and millions of followers. But you mentioned a great point how wherever the Olympics seem to be held, whether it's in Vancouver or you mentioned London with David Beckham, now it's in Tokyo, it's in Japan. So having somebody that's from there like Osaka is, it is very important to have them light the torch. I I grew up playing tennis, so I'm very familiar with her and how she plays and all of that. And the one thing I do have to say, besides her obviously being a great tennis player, she's just very outspoken. This past year, the way that she's spoken out about Black Lives Matter and, like you said, mental health issues, just the way that she carries herself and the way that she can can speak to the masses, whether it's the black community or now the Asian community and her being the final torchbearer in Japan. I didn't know that her fan base in Tokyo and Japan was that big. So thank you for letting me know that because obviously that's what they wanna see. They wanna see their star getting that recognition. Me being obviously from here and being a tennis fan, I know how huge she is here. I love watching her and I love watching everyone else because that the sport is so welcoming and anyone from any country competing in the US Open, Wimbledon, the French Open, the Australian Open, any of the smaller uh, tournaments, it's, it's just great to see uh, the family that these people are, even though they may be playing individually. And the way that Naomi Osaka was just welcomed with open arms into this tennis family is amazing. So obviously she, from the U.S. standpoint, is getting this wonderful fan base and being able to see her up on this huge stage is very empowering for both a woman and being both Asian and uh black. I just think that that choice for them to make was amazing. So the next thing, Sue Bird, a basketball player for the women's national team was chosen alongside baseball player Eddie Alvarez to be the flag bearers for the U.S. during the opening ceremony. She's the she's only the second female basketball player to ever be chosen for this honor behind her own head coach now, Don Staley. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I think that's another great thing. And, and to add on to the point that you talked about previously about Osaka's celebrity, I'm an avid music and hip-hop fan. So I'm a, I'm a fan of Corday's music. Corday to Osaka is known as Osaka's boyfriend, not the other way around. And that's how big of a star she is, that Corday's celebrity gets overshadowed. But to this point about Sue Bird, I think it's awesome because right now we're seeing a rise in women's basketball and how it's getting pushed and promoted you see espn broadcasting these big time games the rise of wnba twitter is now apparent i see people talking about wnba basketball more than i've ever seen before and to have her 
up there in the Olympic stage, I think is awesome because it's, it kind of puts more respect on who she is as a player because she's a fantastic player, one of the best WNBA players of all time. And I think it's awesome for women's basketball who a lot of the times people are very ignorant on the subject and they tend to use these low lights of women's basketball to kind of paint the entire picture of it. When if you watch the game, you understand that these women are insanely skilled and talented at what they do. Sue Bird was the right choice. I, I would say either her or Diana Taurasi, easily one of the two you could make the case. But Sue Bird, a gold medalist in four, con- four consecutive Olympics, that's impressive in its own right. And I think that's a big reason why. She's still doing it at, t- towards the end of her professional basketball career. She's still playing at a high level, so much so that she qualified for the Olympic team. That, to me, that makes enough sense in and of itself to have her be the torchbearer. And she's such a model representative of what the United States wants their athlete to be. Someone who, one, loves the country and loves representing the country, whether the Olympic Games are in the United States or abroad, it doesn't matter. She will put on a show. And also, I think it helps, too, that her fiancé is Megan Rapinoe, another Olympian. So there's that tie there to it. And I'm not going to talk about Eddie Alvarez because I may or may not be bringing him up during another segment we're going to talk about. But I I think the U.S. knocked it out of the park. And honestly, and and I'm not saying this in a pejorative way, but who cares who the U.S. has as their their, their flag bearers and, and who's leading the charge? Because it's the right choice. No matter who it is, it is the right choice because whoever you pick, whether it's the IOC doing it or the USA Olympic Committee, they have enough faith in the two athletes to take care of it. I really like that you said that, saying that whether it's one athlete or another, whoever is doing it is obviously an amazing US athlete and they deserve getting to be one of the flag bearers for the US. One thing I was actually gonna say was whether it was Sue Bird or any other female athlete, I just think that'd be amazing. I know one thing is if it were a gymnast, obviously Simone Biles having that honor, but the gymnastics team actually doesn't go to the opening ceremonies because they said that normally what happens is the um, their first competition that they have happens like immediately following the opening ceremony. So they don't want to go and stand for who knows how long they're there for. I think they said it might be 13 hours of filming. No, I'm kidding, but it's a lot of time. And then even like you said, bringing up Megan Rapinoe, if it's Megan Rapinoe, who wouldn't love to see her being a flag bearer? So I just think, yeah, there's not really a wrong choice, but having that honor is really something special. So now our final topic that we'll be talking about within the Olympics, it only started a few days ago. Some medals have already been won, not many, but many athletes are still competing to get that chance for the gold. So my next two questions for you guys are, which athletes, specifically athletes, are you most excited to see compete in this year's Olympics? And then which sports are you looking forward to watching the most? Well, I'm not much of an Olympic watcher. I'm a simple guy. I'm a three-sport guy. 
uh, basketball, football, uh, baseball. Maybe you can say that. Not really, though. Uh, so that for me, it would be basketball. And for me, it would probably be Kevin Durant, the athlete I want to watch because I think he has something to prove to non-believers like Michael Daly, who think he's not the best player in the world. I know today against France, he, he did he had a tough day, but FIBA rules are different. And honestly, I just I'm looking forward to watching this basketball because I think overseas basketball has gotten the short end of the stick for so many years. And I think now we are seeing them catch up along with seeing the NBA game officiated so differently. And that when we go overseas and we play in these FIBA rules, these players are like, wow, it's really physical here. We would have never been able to compete in the 90s. So you know, I think it's, it's awesome all around, and hopefully these NBA players get better while they're over there overseas in, in Tokyo, you know, playing in these Olympics. And hopefully the NBA adopts some of these rules that FIBA has because I think the NBA has gotten way too soft. To that point, and then I'll say my athlete, I predicted before the Olympics that France was going to win the gold medal. I just think as a cohesive unit with chemistry, I thought that they would outmatch Team USA, and it showed today. But if I'm going to talk about the athlete I'm most looking forward to, I mentioned it, Eddie Alvarez. The, re- the reason being, not only was he the flag bearer, deservedly so, but in 2014 in Sochi, he won a silver medal as a speed skater. And then he did that while being a professional baseball player, made his MLB debut last August with the Miami Marlins, and now he is on Team USA playing baseball. It's ridiculous. The type of athlete this guy is is amazing. I hope more people are able to watch him and appreciate how gifted he is as an athlete. My, I have two because I'm, I'm a pretty avid Olympics watcher. I like to tune into different things, especially when Winter Olympics are on. Curling is like my favorite thing for some reason. But I'm really excited for swimming. And uh, most importantly, I'm really excited to see Katie Ledecky swim for her second Olympics. And then the other one is obviously Simone Biles for gymnastics. She's, I can't even put into words how amazing she is. Just her being able to do things that no one else can, men and women's combined, like no one can do. I just think that is really, really something. Um, So swimming and gymnastics, those are the two that I'm excited for, but obviously I'll kind of tune into a little bit of everything, I guess. So uh, any, any last thoughts or comments from either of you guys before we're done? Um, yeah, Simone Biles, she's great. I, you know, if it was me, I probably would have told her I would tear my ACL on one of those impacts. The way I see her do these flips, I'm like, wow, that is next level. But other than that, no, I don't have any more comments. I think this was amazing time. Uh, maybe next time Daly can beat me in the debate, but today just wasn't his day. Yeah, I don't know about that, Joel. I think uh, I, I think you're misleading yourself. Um, but I will say though, I am looking forward to. The boxing competitions. I was watching judo today, so that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, and I'm 2-0 against Joel, so. Well, everyone, that is all for this episode of X's and Opinions. Be sure to tune in next week, and there'll probably be some more amazing things happening in the world of sports. 
like I said, NBA draft will be starting, MLB trade deadlines happening, and obviously more Olympics coverage. Once again, I'm Haley Zemek, and for Joelle Moran and Michael Daly, thank you guys so much for joining us and have a great rest of your day.